0: Section forty of a visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter twenty of a visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part Two, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. November twenty-third. At six o'clock this morning, I commenced my journey to Florence with a Venturino. Almost the whole distance, the weather was in the highest degree unfavourable. It was foggy, rainy, and very cold. A journey through Italy during autumn or winter is far from agreeable, for there are generally cold and rain to be encountered, and no warm rooms to be found in the inns, where fires are never kindled until after the guests have arrived. And the fires they light in the grates are, after all, quite inadequate to warm the damp, unaired rooms, and the traveller feels scorched and cold almost at the same moment. The floors are all of stone, but a few straw-mats are sometimes spread beneath the dining-tables. The landscape through which we travelled to-day did not possess many attractions. For about forty miles, as far as Ronsiglione, we saw neither town nor village. The aspect of Ronsiglione is rather melancholy, though it boasts a broad street and many houses of two stories. But the latter all have a gloomy look, and the town itself appears to be thinly populated we passed the night here according to italian custom i had made a bargain with the proprietor of our vehicle for the journey including lodging and board i was well satisfied for he strictly kept his contract but whoever expects more than one meal a day under an arrangement of this sort will find himself grievously mistaken the traveller who wishes to take anything in the morning or in the middle of the day must pay out of his own pocket I found everything here exceedingly expensive and very bad. November twenty-fourth. To-day we passed through some very pretty, though not populous, districts. In the afternoon we at length reached two towns, namely, Viterbo, with thirteen thousand inhabitants, lying in a fruitful plain, and Monte Fiescone, built on a high hill, and backed by lofty mountains, on which a celebrated vine is cultivated. At the foot of the hill, Near Montefiascone lies a small lake, and farther on, one of considerable size, the Lago di Balsana, with a little town of the same name, once the capital of the Vulci. An ancient fortress rises in the midst of this town, surrounded by tall and venerable houses as with a wreath. We now had to cross a considerable mountain, an undertaking of some difficulty when we consider how heavy the rain had fallen. By the aid of an extra pair of horses we passed safely over the miserable roads and took up our quarters for the night in the little village of Lorenzo we had already reached the domain of the Apennines november twenty fifth we had now only a few more hours to travel through the papal dominions the river centino forms the boundary between the states of the church and tuscany the greater portion of the region around us gave tokens of its volcanic origin we saw several grottoes and caverns of broken stone resembling lava, basaltic columns, etc. The Dogana of Tuscany, a handsome building, stands in the neighborhood of Ponte Centino. The country here wears a wild aspect as far as the eye can stretch. It rests upon mountains of different elevations. The little town of Radicofani lies on the plateau of a considerable hill, surrounded by rocks and huge blocks of stone a citadel or ancient fortress towers romantically above the little town, and old towers look down from the summit of many a hill and cliff. The character of the lower mountain range is exceedingly peculiar. It is split into gaps and fissures, in all directions, as though it had but recently emerged from the main. For many hours we almost rode through a flood. The water streamed down the streets, and the wind howled round our carriage with such violence that we seriously anticipated being blown over. Luckily the streets in the Tuscan are better than those in the Roman territory, and the rivers are crossed by firm stone bridges. NOVEMBER 26. TODAY OUR POOR HORSES HAD A HARD TIME OF IT. Uphill and downhill, past yawning chasms, our way lay for a long time through a desert and barren district until, at a little distance from the village of Buon the scene suddenly changed, and a widely extended, hilly country, with beautiful plains, the lovely town of Siena, numerous villages, great and small, with homesteads and handsome farms, and solitary churches built on hills, lay spread before us. Everything showed traces of cultivation and opulence." Most of the women and girls we met were employed in plaiting straw. Here all wear straw hats, men, women, and children. At five in the evening we at length reached Siena. Our poor horses were so exhausted by the bad roads of the Apennines that the driver requested leave to make a day's halt here. This interruption to our journey was far from being unwelcome to me, for Siena is well worthy to be explored. November 27th The town numbers 16,000 inhabitants, and is divided almost into two halves by a long, handsome street. The remaining streets are small, irregular, and dirty. The Piazza del Campo is very large, and derives a certain splendor of appearance from some palaces built in the Gothic style. In the midst stands a granite pillar, bearing a representation in bronze of Romulus and Remus suckled by the she-wolf. I saw several other pillars of equal beauty in different parts of the town while in Rome where they would certainly have been more appropriate I did not find a single one all the houses in the streets of Siena have a gloomy appearance many of them are built like castles of great square blocks of stone and furnished with loopholes the finest building is undoubtedly the cathedral though i came from the city of churches the beauty of this edifice struck me so forcibly that for a long time I stood silently regarding it. It is in truth considered one of the handsomest churches in Italy. It stands on a little elevation in the midst of a large square, and is covered outside and inside with white marble. The lofty arches of the windows, supported by columns, have a peculiarly fine effect, and the frescoes in the sacristy are remarkably alike for the correctness of outline and brilliancy of color. The drawings are said to be by Raphael, and the freshness of color observed in these frescoes is ascribed to the good qualities of the Siena earth. The mass-books preserved in the sacristy contain some very delicate miniatures on parchment. Some of the woods in the neighboring hospital are also decorated with beautiful frescoes, which appear to date from the time of Raphael. The grace and beauty of the women of Siena have been extolled by many writers. As to-day was Sunday, I attended high Mass for the purpose of meeting some of these graceful beauties. I found that they were present in the usual average, and no more, beauty and grace are no common gifts. In the afternoon I visited the promenade, the Prado de Liza, where I found but little company. A fine prospect is obtained from the walls of the town. NOVEMBER twenty-eighth, THE COUNTRY NOW BECOMES VERY BEAUTIFUL the mountains are less high, the valleys widen, and at length hills only appear at intervals, clothed with trees, meadows, and fields. In the Tuscan dominions I noticed many cypresses, a tree I had not seen since my departure from Constantinople and Smyrna. The country seems well populated, and villages frequently appear. At five in the evening we reached Florence, but I did not arrive at Madame Moccoli's hotel until an hour and a half later, for the examination of luggage and passes, and other business of this kind, always occupies a long time. The country round Florence is exceedingly lovely, without being grand. The charming Arno flows through the town, it is crossed by four stone bridges, one of them roofed and lined with booths on either side. Florence contains eight thousand houses and ninety thousand inhabitants. The exterior of the palaces here is very peculiar. Constructed chiefly of huge blocks of stone, they almost resemble fortresses, and look massive and venerable. The cathedral is said to be the finest church in Christendom. I thought it too simple, particularly the interior. The walls are only whitewashed, and the painted windows render the church extremely dark. I was best pleased with the doors of the sacristy, with the celebrated works of Luca del Robin, and the richly decorated high altar." The Battisterio, once a temple of Mars, with eight very fine doors of bronze, which Michelangelo pronounced worthy to be the gates of paradise, stands beside the cathedral. The other principal churches are St. Lorenzo, also with a white interior and gray pillars, containing some fine oil paintings, and the Chapel of the Medici, a splendid structure, decorated with costly stones and monuments of several members of the royal family. St. Croce, a handsome church full of monuments of eminent men, is also called the Italian Pantheon. The sculptures are beautiful, and the paintings are good. The remains of Michelangelo rest here, and the Buonaparte family possess a vault beneath a side chapel. Another chapel of considerable size contains some exquisite statues of white marble. St. Annunciate is rich in splendid frescoes, Those placed round the walls in the courtyard of the church, and surrounded by a glass gallery, are particularly handsome. On the left, as we enter, we find the costly chapel of Our Lady dell'Annunciata, in which the altar, the immense candelabra, the angels and draperies, in short everything is of silver. This wealthy church contains an addition, with some good pictures, and a quantity of marble. St. Michel is outwardly beautified by some excellent statues. The interior displays several valuable paintings and an altar of great beauty, beneath a white marble canopy in the Gothic style. St. Spirito contains many sculptures, among which a statue of the Saviour in white marble claims particular attention. All these churches are rather dark, from having stained windows. Foremost among the palaces we may reckon the Palais Pitti, built on a little hill. This structure has a noble appearance, constructed entirely of pieces of granite. It seems calculated to last an eternity. Of all the palaces I had seen, this one pleased me most. It would be difficult to find a building in the same style which should surpass it. As a rule, indeed, I particularly admired the Florentine buildings, which seemed to me to possess a much more decided national appearance than the palaces of modern Rome. The picture gallery of this palace numbers five hundred paintings, most of them masterpieces, among which we find Raphael's Madonna della Sedia. Besides the pictures, each apartment contains gorgeous tables of valuable stone. Behind the palace, the Boboli Gardens rises, somewhat in the form of a terrace. Here I found numerous statues distributed, with much taste, throughout the charming alleys, groves, and open places. From the higher points a splendid view is obtained. The palace degli Uffizi on the Arno has an imposing effect, from its magnificent proportions and peculiar style of architecture. Some of the greatest artistic treasures of the world are united in the twenty halls and cabinets and three immense galleries of this building. The tribuna contains the Venus de Medicis, found at Tivoli, and executed by Cleomenes, a son of Apollodorus of Athens. Opposite to it stands a statue of Apollino. In the center of the hall of the artist's portrait gallery we find the celebrated Medician vase. The cabinet of jewels boasts the largest and finest onyx in existence. The Palazzo Vecchio resembles a fortified castle. The large courtyard, surrounded by lofty arcades, is crowded with paintings and sculptures. A beautiful fountain stands in the midst, and two splendid statues one representing Hercules, and the other David, adorn the entrance. The glorious fountain of Ammanato, drawn by sea horses and surrounded by tritons, is not far off. In the Gerardesca Palace we find a fresco representing the horrible story of Ugolino. The Palazzo Strozzi should not be left out of the catalogue. It has already stood for three hundred and sixty years, and looks as though it had been completed but yesterday. In the Specula we are shown the human body and its diseases, modeled and waxed by the same artist who established a similar cabinet at Vienna, in the Josephinium. In the Museum of Natural History, stuffed animals and their skeletons are preserved. The traveller should not depart without visiting the workshops for hard stones, where beautiful pictures, table slabs, etc., are put together of Florentine marble. Splendid works are produced here. I saw flowers and fruits constructed of stone, which would not have dishonored the finest pencil. The enormous table in the palace degli Uffizi is said to have cost forty thousand ducats. Twenty-five men were employed for twenty years in its construction. It is composed of Florentine mosaic. This table did not strike me particularly. It appeared overloaded with ornament. Of the environs of Florence I only saw the grand duke's milk-farm, a pleasant place near the Arno, amid beautiful avenues and meadows. DEPARTURE FROM FLORENCE DECEMBER third, At seven in the evening I quitted Florence, and proceeded in the mail-carriage to Bologna, distant about eighty miles. When the day broke we found ourselves on an acclivity commanding a really splendid view. Numerous valleys extending between low hills opened before our eyes. The snow-clad apennines formed the background and in the far distance shone a gleaming stripe, the Adriatic Sea. At five in the evening of December 4th we reached Bologna. This town is of considerable extent, numbers fifty thousand inhabitants, and has many fine houses and streets. All of these, however, are dull, with the exception of a few principal streets. Beggars swarm at every corner, an unmistakable token that we are once more in the states of the Church. December 5th, This was a day of rest. I proceeded at once to visit the cathedral which is rich in frescoes, gilding, and arabesques. A few oil paintings are also not to be overlooked. In the church of St. Dominic I viewed with most interest the monument of King Enzio. The picture-gallery contains a St. Cecilia, one of the earlier productions of Raphael. A fine fountain with a figure of Neptune graces the principal square. In the Palazzo Publico I saw a staircase up which it is possible to ride. The most remarkable edifices at Bologna are the two square-leaning towers at Porta Romagna. One of these towers is five, and the other seven feet out of the perpendicular. Their aspect inspired me with a kind of nervous dread. On standing close to the wall to look up at them, it really appeared as though they were toppling down. In themselves these towers are not interesting, being simply constructed of masonry and not very lofty. The finest spot in Bologna is the Campo Santo, the immense cemetery, with its long-covered ways and neat chapels, displaying a number of costly monuments, the works of the first modern sculptors. Three large and pleasant spots near these buildings serve as burial-places for the poorer classes. In one the men are interred, in the second the women, and in the third the children. A hall three miglia in length, resting on six hundred and forty columns, leads from this cemetery to a little hill, surmounted by the church of the Madonna di St. Luca, and from thence almost back into the town. The church just mentioned contains a miraculous picture, namely a true likeness of the Virgin, painted by St. Luke after a vision. The complexion of this picture is much darker than that of the commonest women I have seen in Syria. But faith is everything, and so I will not doubt the authenticity of the picture. The prospect from the mountains is exceedingly fine. I returned in the evening completely exhausted, and in half an hour afterwards was already seated in the post-carriage to pursue my journey to Ferrara. On the whole, the weather was unfavorable, it rained frequently, and the roads were mostly very bad, particularly in the domains of the Pope, where we struck fast four or five times during the night. On one occasion of this kind we were detained more than an hour, until horses and oxen could be collected to drag us onwards. We were twelve hours getting over these fifty-four miles, from six in the evening until the same hour in the morning. December 6th. This morning I awoke at Ferrera, where the carriage was to be changed once more. I availed myself of a few spare hours to view the town, which on the whole rather resembles a German than an Italian place. It has fine broad streets, nice houses, and a few arched ways in front of them. In the centre of the town stands a strong castle, surrounded by fortifications. This was once the residence of the bishop. At nine o'clock we quitted this pretty town, and reached the Po an hour afterwards. We were ferried across the stream, and now, after a long absence, I once more stood on Austrian ground. We continued our journey through a lovely plain to Ravigo, a place possessing no object of interest. Here we stayed to dine, and afterwards passed the Adige, a stream considerably smaller than the Po. The country between Rovigo and Padua was hidden from us by an impenetrable fog, which prevented our seeing fifty paces in advance. At six o'clock in the evening we reached Padua, our resting-place for the night. Early next morning I hastened onwards, for I had already seen Padua, Venice, Trieste, etc. in the year 1840. I reached my native town safely and in perfect health, and had the happiness of finding that my beloved ones were all well and cheerful. During my journey I had seen much and endured many hardships. I had found very few things as I had imagined them to be. Friends and relations have expressed a wish to read a description of my lonely wanderings. I could not send my diary to each one, so I have dared, upon the representations of my friends, and at the particular request of the publisher of this book, to tell my adventures in a plain, unvarnished way. I am no authoress, I have never written anything but letters, and my diary must not, therefore, be judged as a literary production. It is a simple narration, in which I have described every circumstance as it occurred, a collection of notes which I wrote down for private reference, without dreaming that they would ever find their way into the great world. Therefore I would entreat the indulgence of my kind readers, for, I repeat it, nothing can be farther from my thoughts than any idea of thrusting myself forward into the ranks of those gifted women who have received in their cradle the muses' initiatory kiss. End of Section 40 End of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt, and Italy Read by Sabella Denton In Carrollton, Georgia, October 2007